So let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together, to gather in your name, in your spirit. Lord, even in, in this 1 Corinthians, you were, you were teaching us that we together are the temple of God. We're being built up into a temple, and each of us contributes to that. And I, I pray for today that it would be more than uh, information, but that it would be ultimately uh, your presence transforming us into greater life with you, more of you in us, Jesus. We need it, we want it, and we want to be a part of your story in increasing measure. Uh, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, well, if you have been with us, you know that we are in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've been in this book for a few months now, and we've got a few months left to go. We're not quite in the middle. We're a little bit past the middle, but it's been quite a journey. Uh, going through 1 Corinthians, one of the things that we're seeing, and, and this is helpful anytime we study the scriptures, but we're seeing the importance of the context, what is being written into. Uh, it's helpful to understand because as you see the words of Paul, you understand that there's a, a reason why he's writing what he's writing. Uh, so one of the things that we'll see today, Paul's writing specifically into uh, a tendency towards syncretism in the Corinthian church. Now, syncretism is a, is a word that basically describes, we still use it today, uh, when two ideas are merged together to create a new way of living. That's called syncretism. Uh, one of the challenges we face when we go to Nepal is preaching Jesus into a Hindu culture where Hinduism already has multiple millions of gods. You preach Jesus as God, and it can be easy for somebody in Nepal to say, oh, yeah, absolutely, we'll add him to the list. And they just kind of bring Jesus into the list of many, many gods that they worship. And so unless there's a, a clear teaching about the nature of God, there's this potential for syncretism. It's easy to see it in idolatry, in other gods and other faiths and how people try and merge those things together. Uh, but one of the challenges we face is that we ourselves deal with the culture that we're in. Our temptation is to look at Corinth, if you've been with us, and just be like, man, that is a wicked church. And the reality is, yes, they are. They are a wicked church, as are we. And that's been one of the things that we've tried to maintain as we go through this, is the humility to know that we need instruction like Corinth needed instruction. Ours might be different, but we need it. If Jesus were writing seven letters to seven churches today, if Anthem Church were one of them, he would have things about us that he loves and he would have things about us that he hates and he would want to bring correction. And just to give you an idea of syncretism in our culture, uh, how many of you have traveled to a third world country before? Raise your hand if you've traveled to a third world country. All right, we have quite a few. Um, when you went there, did you see the way that America treats money differently after you went to a third world country? Raise your hand if you saw the way that America treats money differently after you went to a third world country. It wrecks you. Like it absolutely destroys your understanding and you, what you start to see is sort of a, a frog in the kettle component. You ever heard that metaphor where you put a frog in a, a kettle of boiling water and it jumps out, but if you put a frog in cold water and boil it, it just swims until it dies. It just stays there as the water gets hot and never jumps out. And part of the challenge of, of being in this kind of a culture is it's just grown to where it's normal. It's normal in the church. It's normal in, in the world around us. The way that we treat money is so different, and it's hard to see it unless you go somewhere else and then look back in on it. And so in the same way that the Corinthians struggled in merging ideas, 
we have merged ideas as well. We've brought a, a love of money and made it normal. And so we ourselves struggle. And that's just one example. And we have a number of examples of those kinds of things that take place in this church and any church. And so with that, what we have to do is go into the scriptures and say, Lord, what do you want to teach us? There might be a little bit of distance from the actual things that the Corinthian church was struggling with, but the Holy Spirit has put these in place for us to see and understand and experience for all time. And we need to understand, Lord, what are you teaching us? What is it that you want us to see from this? So we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's got some good and challenging things for us And I hope that you find this to be valuable. So if you have your Bibles, go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That was a a silly sentence. I said, I hope that you find this to be valuable. I just said, I hope you find the Bible to be valuable. That should be assumed. But um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. I'm just saying words while you're turning in your Bibles or typing it into your phone. And I ended up saying the same word over and over. I got stuck in a loop there. Everybody good? You ready? Okay, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 14. If you remember last week, we did 14 twice. We did it last week, and we're doing it again this week. Paul's writing, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right, so let's dig into this text. There's a lot here for us, and it does get technical. I would encourage you, uh, this might be a note-taking type of a message. If you're not a note-taker, it might be one to write down. We'll be in a lot of scriptures that are going to be very valuable for you to understand some things about this text. So um, maybe write some things down. All right. Therefore, verse 14. Uh, last week we talked about this verse, and we did it twice because it's a bit of a pivot verse. Paul had been talking about this idea of idolatry and how the potential exists for them to slip into some of those things. And, it, and he's calling on this church to not presume on the grace of God. Don't think that you can just go out there and do whatever you want and God's gonna be fine with you hearing the gospel, understanding the truth, and then living however you want. Israel heard the message of God. They saw the pillar of cloud. They were baptized into Moses. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground And then when they were idolatrous, when they were sexually immoral, when they tested God, they experienced the consequences of those actions. They presumed on the grace of God, and that was an unwise choice because God continued to punish them. Even though he held on to Israel and his covenant with them, there was individual sinfulness that was dealt with by God. And so he's he's basically looking at the church and saying, just don't mess with it. This is about pursuing God, not trying to do as much as you can with your flesh in this life. It's a different mentality. So therefore, flee from idolatry. 
Now, when you see the word flee, what do you think, uh, what do you think flee means? Run. There's no hidden Greek meaning to that word. Just get out. Like, run. Go. That picture, uh, we see it before, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Like, run. Just get away from it. And that picture is drawn back to the book of Genesis when you have Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Joseph is in the house of a a man named Potiphar. He works for him. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and Joseph literally runs out of the house. He doesn't dance around it. He doesn't say, hey, Potiphar's wife. I'm sure she had a name. This is inappropriate. We should really get some accountability partners in place here and make sure, you know, he just runs. Like, get away from it. And Paul's writing to this church, and he's saying, I love you. Whenever you see my beloved, it's not like a token phrase, like, hey, guys, it's people that I love. Stop getting close to the line. Like, run away from this. This is the warning in love. The kid that's running into the street and the parent that shouts, stop, it's not punishment. It's not not trying to prevent them from experiencing the fullness of life as they run out into the street. It's trying to prevent them from being smacked by a car and dying. It's a warning given in love, and Paul's writing to them saying, flee from idolatry. This is not something to test. It's not something to dabble in, to mess around with, to dance with. Don't do that. It's not good for you. Run away. So Paul has the big statement, and then he's going to go in and he's going to give the logic behind it. He's going to try and help them understand. Now, I've been accused of this where I I don't just say hard statements to people. I try and get them to come to the logical conclusion on their own. It's part of the people pleaser in me. I don't want to say hard things, but I want you to believe what I want you to believe, and so I try and persuade you. Paul is saying the hard thing, but then he's very persuasive. He's actually trying to bring them along in the logic so that they can land on the conclusion themselves. And so he says this, and he's not being a flatterer. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He's basically looking at this church saying, you know this stuff. You're not foolish people. You are fully aware of the reality of what I'm teaching you, but I need to bring it up again. You're sensible people. You can put these things together. So as Paul builds this idea of getting them to flee from idolatry, the place that he starts is communion. That's what he uses as an example to help them understand the teaching that he's bringing on idolatry. And before we dig into this, I want to, a lot of people have tried to draw the theology of of communion from this passage, and it's created a lot of uh, diverse beliefs about what happens in communion, what happens to the bread, what happens to the wine or the juice. And honestly, many of the denominational fractures that we have today have come from a difference in beliefs about communion. And so as you look around and you see Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and all the different denominations, well, one of the core beliefs that, that has created division in the church, which is wild, that the thing designed to bring unity to the church has actually brought some division to the church historically. In that, it's because people have tried to draw perhaps too much meaning even from this passage. Paul's not trying to give a doctrine of communion or the Lord's Supper in this passage. He'll get to that a little bit later. Here he's using it as an example to get them to understand something that he's trying to teach them about idolatry. So here's what he says about it. And I'm going to grab this. We're going to use it, and we'll have a a physical example. 
So this is our kind of communion station. We have one over there as well. We do a, a gluten-free cracker, which is not heretical. And uh, we do grape juice, which is also not heretical. But these things are here, and every week we set them up as, a, um, as an opportunity for the church to, to participate in communion. So I want you to hear how Paul uses this to teach us about idolatry. He says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So Paul's going to build some logic. The issue that he was facing is that the Corinthian church, in their freedom in Christ, felt like now they could go, and the social life of the Corinthian city was built around feasts, that in those feasts, they would uh, be worshiping false gods. So social life, Aphrodite, Artemis, whatever the, whatever the gods are, they would have these huge feasts, a big dinner party, and there would be idolatry taking place at that. There would be offerings to those. And these Christian people who had pagan roots, culture being drawn back in, were like, look, we know that there's no God behind those idols. So we have freedom to go to those parties and we're not committing idolatry because that's an empty idol. We believe in the one true God. That's the, that's the direction that they've gone. We can do this because we know that there's nothing behind that idol. And if you remember the argument, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Paul's built with them, you're right. There's nothing behind that idol. It is a false God. You can eat the meat. I don't care about the meat. Whatever meat's been sacrificed to an idol, I'm not worried about you eating that. What I am worried about is this. In your freedom, your reaction is to declare your own rights and say, I, because of Jesus setting me free, can do what I want, which is eat this meat. And he said, in that, you are leading people who have tender faith, maybe even are still finding their way back to God. You're leading them to a place where they're actually experiencing destruction. They're going back to their old way of life. You have the potential to lead somebody back to their old way of life because you're expressing your freedom in Christ. He said, that's not real freedom. Take your freedom and use it to lay yourself down. Sacrifice yourself to build up the body of Christ. Use your freedom to genuinely love other people. That's the argument that Paul's been building. And here he gets to a place where he's essentially saying, this isn't about the food. He still even gets to that place. I'm still not talking about the meat here. That's fine, whatever. Now I'm talking about your participation in these pagan feasts. There is something going on there. And so to build that argument, he says, let's take communion. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Is it something or is it nothing? It's basically Paul's question. Is it something or is it nothing? And they would have to look at that as sensible people and say, it's something. I want you to, just for a moment, Jesus gave us this bread. He, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in that, we were given something physical to signify, to remember a spiritual thing that has taken place. He took a cup of wine. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And it represented the new covenant, the blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I just want you to picture for a moment. Let's take the physical thing out. And let's just say, instead of that, every week I stand up here and I just say, all right, everybody, just for a moment, I want you to remember the body of Jesus given up for you. I want you to just think about it. Meditate on it. Just ponder it. It's pretty big, isn't it? It's a big deal. Okay, good. 
Now I want you to remember the blood of Christ. I want you to imagine the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. See, Jesus understood the nature of how we experience things. He gave us something to bridge the gap between our physical existence and the spiritual reality that is taking place. He gave us his body in the form of bread to remember him being given up for us. He gave his blood in the form of wine poured out for the forgiveness of sins as as something tangible for us as human beings to be reminded regularly of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, take baptism as another example. Uh, So as um, we don't believe that you need to be baptized to be saved, that's the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Uh, We don't hold to that, but we would say that they're also virtually inseparable. Uh, Believe and be baptized. Uh, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we wouldn't really separate belief and baptism, but we also wouldn't say you need to be baptized to be saved. Just something to share with you. In baptism, what do we have? There's a body of water, an ocean, a lake, a river, a spa, or a pool, or a bathtub. I've done a bathtub before. There's some kind of water. And the action of being baptized, you're taking somebody and you're putting them under the water, and as they go under the water, and that water just seals over the top. I hope you're not too claustrophobic. That water just seals over the top of us. It's like the tomb of Jesus closing. It's the picture that we're given is our death. And then we're raised up to walk in the newness of life, and it's this picture that's given to us of our resurrection, that like Christ was raised up, you are raised up to walk in the newness of life. Now, what if somebody gave their life to Jesus, and instead of that, we just said, okay, I want you to picture in your mind your own death. Like Jesus died on the cross, you did too. And then like Jesus came out of the grave, you come out of the grave as well. It's like we can, get, we can get some of the way there, but when we take this physical act of baptism and we do it, it joins the physical with the spiritual. It merges our, our tangible experience in this world with the spiritual reality that's, that's taking place. Jesus washing our sins by the blood of his, his own death his body being given up and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus washing us with his water and restoring us to right relationship with with God, giving us his righteousness. These pictures come with something tangible for us. And so Paul's writing to the church and he's saying, when you take communion, it's not a snack. It's not just, uh, you know, a little bit to hold you over for the final 20 minutes of service. That would be a terrible snack. That's not the point of this at all. We're not even close to that. We do this for the purpose of experiencing something to remind us of God's presence, to draw us in. It merges the physical and the spiritual. Then he goes in verse 17 and he expands on this. He says, because there is one bread, and honestly, as I was studying this this week, I thought we need to go away from that. We do the crackers for hygiene, uh, but the, the single loaf, imagine just tearing a piece off and there's a picture of that and Paul's writing, he says, Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And there's this picture of you tearing away the bread. Paul will expand on this. Chapter 12, 13, 14 is basically like Paul's tangent on this very concept where he's like, oh, 
one body. And he goes in and he talks about one body, many members. It's like we're one loaf of bread and everybody's this little piece and Christ is the bread and we are all members of the body. And, this, and communion is designed for us to remember that. When we take it, it's not just a singular action, a person in themselves having a holy moment, but it's union with one another in Christ. That's why we call it Communion brings us together, reminds us of the unity of the body of Christ. And Paul's like, yeah, that's that's such a tangible thing. And then he says this, and he's taught a ton about the Old Testament to this church, pagans and Jews alike. He says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And Paul is teaching this idea that is very familiar from Leviticus that, that participants in the sacrificial meal, there's There's God's presence in that. It's something, again, beyond just a physical thing. When the priests would eat of the food that was sacrificed, it wasn't just a meal. It was part of their joining with with what God's doing, his covenant promise, reminder of his presence, his faithfulness, and his provision. So Paul's like, we've got communion. It's more than just a physical thing. We've got the altar of Israel when they would sacrifice to Yahweh and participate that. It's more than just a physical thing. So when the pagans eat their meals, is it just a physical thing? That's where Paul's going with this. Are we just in a physical world or is there more to the story than that? Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, that's not the path I'm going down, but here is the path that I'm going down. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So Paul's going in here to an understanding of the nature of the spiritual world. And while there is nothing in an idol, Aphrodite, as the Greeks and the Romans understood her, is not a real god. We're not up against Aphrodite. We're not up against Baal. We're not up against Asherah. We're not up against these different gods, but there are demons behind those gods. And when we participate in these pagan feasts, we are joining in with those demons. Now, I don't know if you have a a healthy biblical demonology. Anybody here have a healthy biblical demonology? It's not really a sentence that comes to our mind. But I actually want to take advantage of the fact that Paul talks about this, and I I want to take some time and make sure that we understand the nature of how the scriptures interact with demons and what role they play in this world around us because it will help us understand what Paul is getting at with this passage in 1 Corinthians 10. So I have a, I have a list of scriptures. This is where I want to encourage you to take notes. I printed mine out and highlighted them. You do not have this. So take some notes. They will be up here on the screen behind us. Uh, this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, is built off of Deuteronomy 32. So when Paul is writing this, he is actually teaching things that he taught out of Deuteronomy chapter 32. So this is it. Deuteronomy 32, 15 through 18. Uh, but Jeshurun grew fat. That Jeshurun is uh, Israel. It's a name for Israel. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. It's not often that we associate sleek with fat and stout. I just, you know, think that's impressive. He forsook God who made him 
and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Last week, the rock was Christ. They scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So essentially what Paul is saying is when you worshiped a golden calf, when Israel went that way, and Moses is saying the same thing, this is Moses' like final moments in life. Israel, when you betrayed God and went after idols, there was nothing to that idol, but there were demons that inhabit those idols. This is part of the teaching of the scriptures is that while there's, there may not be anything to these foreign gods, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are monotheists. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that one God is not competing with a pantheon of other gods for authority, for voice, for presence, anything like that. We believe in one God, but there absolutely is a spiritual realm full of forces that are working against the will of God in this world, led by Satan with demonic forces, demons that are put to work throughout the world, throughout the earth, to carry out the the mandate of Satan to deceive. We're going to take some time. We're going to walk through scriptures to try and understand the nature of this. But essentially what what Moses said in Deuteronomy and what Paul's saying in Corinth is that you have idols and demons inhabit those idols. So the idols are nothing, but the demons that inhabit them are something. Okay, that's the initial message. Here's 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. A little bit of a biblical demonology here. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul's helping the Corinthian church later on down the line in history understand how Satan works. That he doesn't just come out and say, all right, I want you to worship me. I've got horns. I want you to listen to Metallica. I'd like you to uh, just be like this this demon-worshiping person. He comes disguised as an angel of light. He looks like good. But his objective is to draw us away from the one true good that is God. So it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So Paul's writing and he's calling on the Corinthian church to have discernment because there are going to be people who preach like the gospel, but that is not actually the gospel. And in that you have Satan and his servants steering people away from the truth of the gospel. What we learn is that Satan's goal, again, is not that people would devote themselves fully to him, but just that their attention would be divided from Christ, that they would be taken away from the truth of the gospel. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Paul's writing to the Ephesian church. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
So you grow up in Sunday school, you put on the armor of God, and there's this great picture. You've got the shield, the breastplate, the boots, the helmet, the belt. You've got all this stuff on, and it's a great picture of like, like spiritual life and what we're supposed to do, but sometimes we miss the fact that, that that's to adjust to the schemes of the devil, to prepare for the fact that the devil is scheming against the church and has intention to deceive the church, and Paul is training the church to prepare for the devil's attempts to steer us away from Christ. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And we use this on a couple of levels. One, in the positive, to make sure that we understand that even people that are offensive to you, that hurt you, that are unforgiving or bitter or unkind or bullies or whatever the case, people that go after you, you can see them differently because your battle is not against flesh and blood. This is not about the person that's right in front of you, but you know that there's more to the story, that God's heart is for them to be restored and redeemed into right relationship with him. So we use it that way. But we also understand that the battle of this world is not against flesh and blood, but there is a spiritual realm behind flesh and blood. And it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A quick little uh, deviation over to Colossians, where Paul's writing to the Colossian church. He says, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and what we learn from what Paul's writing to the Ephesians and what Paul writes to the Colossians is that anybody that is not a follower of Jesus, that hasn't been transferred from the domain of darkness into this new kingdom, is a subject of the domain of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, under the rule and the authority of the enemy. And so even if somebody's not a, a quote-unquote Satan worshiper, they're just a person in the world that doesn't pursue Jesus, they're a part of the kingdom of the enemy of God. And so what we learn is that there is a battle waging war against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul, writing to the church, says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So what we're learning is that it is not the objective of the scriptures for us to run away from the battle to avoid the evil of this world, but rather to gear up and get in the game. Have you ever read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, and just been like, man, there's a lot of demons. Anybody ever said that before when you're reading through the Gospels? I, I have. I'm reading through Mark right now, and it's just like, wow, there are a lot of demons. Why are there so many demons in the Gospels? Jesus is the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. As Jesus enters into humanity, what we see is that that light shining into the darkness exposes the demonic activity that is happening in the world. So Jesus is the purest form of light. He is the light. And as he walks into the world, it sheds light on what is happening. I do not believe that there is a difference in demonic activity between first century Israel and Southern California today. 
but that if Jesus were to walk into our city, he would shine a light on the demonic activity that we have not yet shown on the things that are going on. And what you have is that as you walk in Christ and his authority and his power, you become, you are the light of the world, Jesus said. Therefore, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. So there's this entrusting of the light to us to walk into the darkness, into the brokenness of humanity. And as we walk like Christ, we will expose the darkness as Christ exposed the darkness. The more you are walking in Christ into a broken world, the more you're going to see what is happening as Christ saw perfectly what is happening. Does that make sense? So Paul's writing and saying, as he's just talked about growing up to the mature manhood, to the fullness that is Christ. He's talked about unity in the spirit. And now he's gearing this church up in Ephesus for the battle. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm because the day is evil. You are going to see the works of the enemy. So gear up and get ready because it is alive and well. James 2.19, continuing with our biblical understanding of demons. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's really important to know that our faith is not about a cognitive awareness of Yahweh and his son Jesus bringing salvation to the world because the demons believe that too. The demons witnessed Jesus Christ on the cross and his blood dripping out of his body. They watched him buried in a tomb and they saw him firsthand raised from the dead and eventually ascend into heaven. There is zero question in the mind of the demonic, demonic realm as to whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. None. Not one question mark. And what you learn from that is that this is not about whether you acknowledge in your mind that Jesus is Savior. That has never been the question. James is building an, an entire case for saying faith without works is dead. Unless a person doesn't put into action the words of Christ, they have completely missed the point. This isn't just about your belief, your awareness that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Put that into your life, and that is the faith that brings salvation. That's the idea of faith. It's not simple acknowledgement. But go. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul writing to Timothy says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Okay, what we understand from the scriptures is that the demons are actively putting misinformation out into the world for us to grab a hold of and run down those paths. That they are sowing disinformation into our world for Christians to consume. Again, a warning to the body of Christ that the demons are active in teaching us. They're out there. They're trying to lay the groundwork for you to believe things about God that are not true. James 3, 15 through 17. This is helpful for understanding 1 Timothy 4.1. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Okay, I want you to see how Paul, I'm sorry, James ties those things together. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
earthly and unspiritual, things that are generally just inane, that we don't really think about, that aren't, aren't actively for God, and in our minds, they're not actively demonic, well, those are inhabited by Satan. He, again, you have idols. This is kind of going back to 1 Corinthians. You have idols that are inhabited by the enemy, and as James is writing, he's saying we have things in this world that seem neutral but are ultimately demonic because they are a part of the enemy's domain. This is going somewhere. Just give me a minute to get there. James continues, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So just giving you an idea of demonic things like selfish ambition and disorder. But, for, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The authors of the scripture are trying to help us grow our discernment because the demons are going to be out there putting things in our path, trying to take us away from Christ. And the, the scriptures are pointing us to this discernment of understanding the nature of the gospel. I'm going to skip over 2 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. Let's go to Revelation 2. Sorry, that was for uh, Paul, not for you guys. Um, Revelation 2, 23 through 25. Uh, sometimes the monks didn't do a great job, and uh, the end of one sentence, you can just put the, I will strike her children dead into the last verse, and here we go. So start with the and all, if you wouldn't mind. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Just a quick pause on this. Jesus writing seven letters to seven churches, and he tells them that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to you, to each of you, according to your works. Jesus is sharing that he is actively judging the churches. He's watching us. He's watching our hearts. He's watching our mind. He's looking to us to see, are we walking by faith? This is why we have to walk through this life with open hands and say, Lord, if we're off, correct us. Please correct us. Take us down the path of righteousness. Don't let us walk down the way of deception. Just continue to refine us. This is why we go through the scriptures, why a letter to the Corinthian church is a letter to us because we want to be refined and restored. We want to walk by faith and constantly in humility say, Jesus, we want you to be actively judging us every day and show us where we can walk in greater faith and obedience to you. So he continues, Jesus, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Teaching from Satan, the gospel of Jesus. He's saying, I want you to hold fast to this. Get me and let those other things fall to the wayside. Pursue Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Zero in on Jesus and let that be your pursuit. Jesus is calling on the same thing, that part of discernment is fixing your eyes on Jesus and not getting distracted by what Paul will tell Timothy, old wives' tales, genealogies, myths, things that are out there on the fringes, those are not important. The pursuit of Jesus is. 
The enemy will throw things at us to distract us, to deceive us, to take us down other places, and that is not what we are called to do. We're called to focus our attention on Jesus. Hold fast to what you have until I come. Last one, James 4, 4 through 10. You adulterous people, you can get that knit and mounted above your doorway as people come into your home. James 4, 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Keep that one in your minds. We'll need that one. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Going back to 1 Corinthians, this is where this passage is taking us. Paul is writing to this church. And he's saying, I don't want you to participate with demons. When you join yourself to these pagan feasts, the spiritual is meeting the physical, and you are participating with demons, and I don't want that for you. I don't want you to dabble with that or mess with that. I want you to not be a part of those things. But then he says this. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Look at verse 5 back in James 4. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And here's the nature of what Paul is getting at. You can't be divided. Your freedom in Christ is not given to you to go and divide your affection and your attention among the things of this world and the demons that inhabit them. He's calling us to whole and complete devotion to Jesus. Jesus teaches something similar in Luke 16, and I'll just use the last verse. I was going to go a little deeper into this. But Luke 16, 13 says, No servant, this is Jesus teaching, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God has put his spirit in you and he is jealous for his spirit. He wants us to grow to full devotion to him and not live lives where our devotion is divided among the other things of this world that are inhabited by the enemy. This is the message of of Paul. This is what he's getting at. He's even going to say in the very next verse, chapter 10, verse 23, next week, spoiler alert, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. There's there's a difference Paul's going to get at between going into the world, to the Jews I became a Jew, 
To those under the law, I became one under the law. To those outside the law, I became one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. I became all things to all people so that by any means, I might save some. There is a difference between running into the darkness on mission and running into the darkness because we want what's there. And Paul is saying, this is not for you to want the things of this world. That's not the life that we live anymore. You're not just saved and set free so you can go back to the pagan festivals and enjoy them for your own benefit. Now it's different if you are there on mission to win people to Jesus. And Paul will actually go into that in detail next week and talk about the missional nature of being in the world. Jesus ate with pagans. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus went to dark and broken places. And everywhere he went, he became all things to all people so that by any means he might save some. He was there to shine the light of the gospel on those places and for no other reason. And Paul's looking at a Corinthian church that is experiencing the darkness, going into the darkness for their own pleasure, to satisfy their own flesh. And he's basically saying, no, 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 no. That's not what Christ set us free to do. Part of our role as followers of Jesus is to be vigilant with our hearts that they would be fully and completely devoted to Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, uh, you'll be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Ultimately, that's what Paul is getting at. That every follower of Jesus would occupy a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he's hoping to whittle away at the things in this life. Now, there might be immediate reaction things that need to take place, like repentance. I have been running after this thing, and I need to stop running after this thing, and I need to pursue Christ. That might be the case today. And if so, I want to invite you to repentance, to even turn today from the things that have divided your attention from Christ. Absolutely, that might be the case. But part of this also is for every one of us not just to do the one-time thing, but to build into our lives the habit of being aware of the fact that culture is always pulling. That's why we started in the syncretism place. Culture is always pulling at us to just add things in and bring stuff into our lives and to our faith that become these things. Kristen, a couple years ago, we were going on sabbatical, and she, she was she's sharing, and I think it was a prophetic moment over our family. She said, Monsters University. She used Monsters University as a prophetic vision for our family. There's this scene where they're running through this gauntlet, and these things are being shot at them, and they start sticking, and then they just start to grow and take over, and eventually they're just these balls rolling around, and they can't move, and the enemy is just, he's fine to just pack us full of stuff that is not Jesus. He is perfectly fine to just pack your life full of stuff that is not him. And the call of Paul on our life in this moment, the 
The call of Jesus on our life to not serve two masters is to fight for full devotion to Jesus. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us cast off the things that so easily entangle and the sins. It's not always sinful stuff. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The enemy is a part of it. But he's adding to our life the stuff that's just taking away from our focus on Jesus. And that's a win in his book. That's what he is out to accomplish in us. So part of our battle, let me go back to 1 Corinthians just to finish this up. When we think about provoking the Lord to jealousy, Paul's going back to that testing the Lord language. Are you in this life for your own benefit? Or now that you are a follower of Jesus, are you here to be devoted to him? That's been the the question, the big question of 1 Corinthians is calling us to Christ, calling us to Christ, calling us to Christ. And part of that is gonna be the discipline and the diligence of each one of us to say, all right, I wanna check my heart. We have to go on a date probably once every six, we go on more dates than once every six months, but a specific date about once every six months where we actually just open up our journals, we open up our calendars on our phone. Does the life that we're living match up with the life that we want to live? The things that we're actually doing, are they, are they fulfilling the things that God is inviting us into? We have to check that frequently. We have to go back to that place and readjust our calendar, readjust our priorities, readjust our hearts, readjust our habits and practices to make sure that we are walking in a way that produces more of Christ in our life. If that hasn't been a part of our life, then we find ourselves drifting in a big way. It's part of all of us, and it's just gonna keep coming at us. And so the call of Paul on our lives is to be devoted to the pure pursuit of Jesus and to not fight for these things that don't matter. And the Corinthians were fighting for stuff that did not matter. So as we get ready to worship, actually, let me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we need, we need you in this. I pray that you would bring conviction. I know that you, there's no condemnation for those who are in you, Jesus, so you don't condemn but you bring this beautiful conviction, this ping in our soul that calls us to a right relationship with you, to a pure and sincere pursuit of you. Jesus, you give us that gift, and I'm grateful for it, and I pray that that would be present in us today. Would you give us eyes to see our own lives and vigilance and diligence to join you in tearing those things away from our lives so that we can run in pure and sincere devotion to you into the darkness, Lord, ultimately. Because as you shone the light into the darkness, we want that, Jesus. We want your light to shine in the darkness. We want to be ready for whatever the enemy wants to throw at us, Lord. If we could participate in that, we, we want to join with you in pushing back the domain of darkness. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus. We want more of your kingdom pushing back the darkness. Would we be a part of that? 
I just pray, Lord, that from James, that same thing today, would we humble ourselves in your sight, that you would lift us up. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.